Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning. Hello, my name's Jess. No, Melon. And this is Murder in the Land of Oz. Yay! Hello, 623 subscribers. How you going? Not that we're counting. I'm very excited. I have no though. interest at all if yes, there are do. people listening to this podcast. No, I'm very Did blase. Did you know that you could buy Murder in the Land of Oz merch? Oh my God, that transition was so seamless. Yes. No, Jess, I didn't know. Well, I want to get one. Because it's a, like you can get in that hot pink. I want. I kind of want a sweatshirt, mm-hmm. but then I don't know how I feel personally about walking around with the word murder on me. You have it on you right now. I am. Um, yes. Shout out to Bubble Cap Designs on Instagram. I have murderino earrings on in this like beautiful like pink marble, and I love them. Listen, they, they made a sound. That's my earrings. Wonderful. Um. We so, don't have earrings, but we have other merchandise, which definitely. you can check out. I'll post a link in the show notes. Please buy it. So our last episode that we posted was a short little bonus. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it was. Never mind. Sorry. Jesus Christ. I'm really tired. Anyway, the last episode that we posted was a bonus episode about Eurydice Dixon. Um, you know, rough times, rough times. Um, but it's Ellen's turn to pick a moita. I picked the moita. You picked the moita. Didn't commit it, but I picked it. No. Also, before we get into it, I just want to say I am loving The Staircase Sick. It's the best. If you have watched it, please share Staircase memes with us on Facebook. I have been posting a few because it's so good. I haven't watched The Staircase because I prefer to read my true crime, but I do love a good meme, even if I can't relate to it. You don't like to watch true crime? No, I do. I prefer to read it. Okay, we'll find a book about Michael Peterson for you. Thank you. Because that guy is a motherfucker. Anyway. Anyway. What's the murder tonight, Ellen? The murder tonight is... Or this morning. Or this morning. Or this afternoon. Whenever you're listening to it. Whatever period of time that you are currently occupying. (laughs) uh, We are talking about the Gatton murders. Gatton. We are venturing a little bit out of Brisbane. Not, Not that far. Not too far, but a little. And we are going to be talking about one of the most famous... Unsolved crimes in Australian history. Gatton murders. The Gatton murders. So Gatton today is a small town west of Brisbane. It has a public library, the Gatton campus of the University of Queensland, and many a war memorial, probably more than is necessary for a town of 7,000 people. 
An agricultural college and experimental farm was established in Gatton in 1897, and the town continues to be the agricultural centre of the region. Sandwiched between Brisbane and Ipswich in the east and Toowoomba in the west, Gatton's regional heart is being continually encroached by the urban sprawl of the other cities. But in the late 19th century, Gatton was like a frontier town, like Westworld, minus the robots. Or Wild Wild West. Minus the robots. (laughs) Are there robots in Wild Wild West? Fuck off. There are not. Fuck off. What Great. movie was I watching then? I don't know. Anyway, back to the murder. You're really angry. I'm not angry. I'm just really confused. Um, so friend of the podcast, Joel O'Brien, I asked him, can you give me three words to describe Gatton? He was a lot nicer than I thought he was going to be. I thought he was going to be like shithole, the worst. It's nut. not that bad. He said small, homey, neighborly. Wow, and that's he really would know he worked at the IGA. I know, isn't that sweet? That but that's sweet. Joel. He's sweet. He's a very sweet person. So, uh, ignoring forty thousand years of indigenous occupation and jumping right into the white history of Gatton, oh. it was first declared a township in eighteen fifty-five. Many of the first white settlers in the area were Irish Catholic immigrants who were attempting to My flee people. to America. Also, mine. Um, they were attempting to flee to America, but were unable to travel there due to a minor inconvenience known as the American Civil War. Ugh, Instead, they were brought to Australia, times. which I feel like they would probably be a little bummed about. Definitely. Um, bit of a downgrade. So passage to Australia was a XC 12 pounds back in the day. Jesus. And would-be settlers needed somebody on the mainland to pay their way. Some people like Mary Holland and Daniel Murphy were brought to Queensland by the Queensland Immigration Society. Why was that in... Bunny quotes. I don't. I just put it as bunny quotes in the script, so I just did it in real life as well. Oh, I thought you were insinuating that Queensland Immigration Society. No, they were a real exist. society. They wouldn't oh, exist good. these days. You know how Queenslanders feel about immigration these days. Not preferable. Not, they don't prefer it. <laughs> they do not like it. Uh, anyway, the official status of the podcast re-immigration is that we're all for is it. Is that to, more people the better? Yeah, this is very low population. Bring your delicious foods from your countries and Please let us do. eat them. Please do. Gentrify our neighbourhoods. We're, we're into it. Please do it. Um, so they were bought by the Queensland Immigration Society, no sarcastic quotation marks, who would give age, aid to desirable immigrants. Desirable. Domestic Ooh. servants, labourers and farmers were greatly desired in newly emerging townships like Gatton. Labourers especially were drawn to work on the railway that was being built between Ipswich and Toowoomba. Daniel Murphy was one such labourer. Shortly after arriving in Queensland in 1864, he met Mary Holland. They married, and as you did back in the day, they promptly had 10 children. Jesus fucking Christ. You know those Irish Catholics. The Murphy family consisted of... Thank God for contraception. Thank God, really. We owe so much to contraception. (laughs) Um, Consisted of Mum Mary, Dad Daniel, and siblings Polly, William, Michael, Patrick, Daniel, Jeremiah, Nora, Ellen, John, and Catherine. I mean, you had a family and one kid was called Polly and one of the other ones was called Jeremiah. Yeah. Jesus. Jeremiah is the quintessential old-timey name. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Jebediah from, from <laughs> Jebediah Springfield. He was not part of the Murphy family, but he was basically the only person that wasn't. So the eldest daughter, Polly, was the rebel of the family. Ooh. She did the, the 19th century equivalent of, you know, shacking up with some <gasps> 26-year-old Ooh, with a teardrop tattoo. Was she a fallen woman? She was a fallen woman. Stop it. She Polly, married yes. a Protestant. Oh, no. She married a promised Protestant man named William McNeil. <gasps> William McNeil the yes. Protestant. So Shit. His 
Protestantism was a terrible crime, but he was also a drinker and a gambler and a bit of a cad as Molly gave birth to their daughter after only two months of marriage. Oh, no. Shortly after the birth, Polly sustained a mystery injury that left her paralyzed and unable to care for herself or her daughter. This life-threatening paralysis was allegedly caused by a fall out of bed, but her family and the neighborhood gossip suggested that McNeil was the more likely culprit. Oh, that poor woman. Yes. Being paralyzed in the 1800s. Fuck that. Right after giving birth as well. Jesus. McNeil had met Polly working at Westbrook Station. He is a butcher and she is a servant. After leaving that job, he opened his own butchering premises. While Polly was in hospital after sustaining her unfortunate injury, McNeil had returned home from the shop to find, returned to the shop to find the building ablaze. (gasps) He was conveniently insured for 160 pounds, and although town gossip at the time suggested that his brother had set the fire on purpose, McNeil received a payout of 100 pounds. Jesus Christ, they gossip in Gatton. Yeah, but that was baller money. 100 pounds was like. I'm buying you a car. I'm, I'm buying, buying you, you a car. car. <laughs> so he or was, a cart or a horse yeah, or a saddle. I'm buying you a whip. <laughs> um, he literally did buy Ellen Murphy a whip. Yes. Um, oh, no. Yeah, not a sexy whip, a horse Oh, whip. good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving vastly along. The Murphys, including Polly after her injury and occasionally her husband, William McNeil, lived on a rented dairy farm six miles out of Gatton in a locality very politically incorrectly known as Blackfellows Creek. Oh, I'm going to say that phrase several times throughout this episode. I apologize in advance. Blackfellows Creek still exists. You drive over it. Hell, Gatton, change the name. Yes. We actually have quite a problem in Australia with very, very racist town names. I read an SBS article about it once and it changed my life. Google it. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Show notes. Show notes. Hashtag show notes. Hashtag read the show notes. (laughs) Nobody ever does. So the elder sons worked on the dairy farm. Zane does. Thanks, Zane. Thanks, Zane. Um, Elder sons worked on the farm while Daniel, the farmer, worked at a scrub farm around five kilometers away. A scrub farm was an allotment of bush that was made available to the settlers on the condition that they cleared it so it could be used as like productive land. Um, The vast majority of the men in the area works these kinds of jobs on farms or as hired laborers. Towards the end of 1898, Michael Murphy was working at the Westbrook Experimental Farm outside Toowoomba, which sounds like Area 51, but is just aliens. like they just grow stuff. Aliens. It's just like they grow aliens. what soil makes grow tomatoes cats. grow faster. They grow cats. They, they grow, grow tin tomatoes. I mean, I wasn't there. They could. They just grow them right out of the tin. <laughs> they plant the aluminium seed and yeah. the tin. Ju- well, tins are made out of tin. I don't know why I said aluminium. Um... So he worked at the Westbrook Experimental Farm outside Toowoomba, which was right across from Willie McNeil's butcher shop. But the two men did not interact very often because they hated each other. Ooh. Like it's all like the sharks Polly's and the jets. family, they all hated Willie McNeil and treated him with disdain. Fair enough, he did paralyze Good. their system. He was a fucker. Gatton at the time was the quintessential Australian colonial town. At a population of around 400, the train station was the social hub of the area and the youth would congregate not to smoke durries and graffiti the toilets like modern day station dwellers, but to greet friends and neighbours as they alighted or disembarked on their journeys. The wide, unpaved streets of the town housed churches, hotels and probably a few 19th century bottlers. There was a- <laughs> oh, she's so funny. There was a cricket club, a showground, and a dog racing track. The various immigrant groups kept mainly to themselves. There were always high tensions running between the Irish Catholics and the Protestants. 
and crime was doing fine. Was it? Yes. People were kind of inspired by the Kelly gang who (gasps) were in very recent memory. I have just noticed recently, sorry, sidetrack, how much paraphernalia there is of Ned Kelly. Fucking hell, you go to the Rockley Markets and old mate on the corner, like right down the end, selling shirts with Ned Kelly's face on it. I was like, did you know him? Ned Kelly's you- sick. Are you about to insult Ned Kelly in no, front of me? No, but he definitely like robbed and killed some people, didn't he? Who hasn't? We haven't. <laughs> I mean, who didn't back in the day? As we're about to find out in this Fair episode, enough. everybody in this damn town was in prison for something or another. It's just what you did. What else could you do? There was no Twitter. It was all about gambling and drinking and stabbing a guy. Um, also, crime is terrible. Don't do it. Um, yes, yeah, so gangs of larrikins would Ooh. set upon people. Larrikins these days means like a funny bloke. Oh, he's wearing Oh, what a larrikin. Pants. Yeah, exactly. What a larrikin. But it actually means like criminal gang member. Right. Um, so these gangs of larrikins would set upon people, destroy property, rob people, and generally trash the place. Ooh. Animal mutilations and thefts went uninvestigated. No. A safe in town was once blown up and the contents stolen, the most likely suspect being a former police constable, Jack O'Brien. Joel O'Brien's ancestor. Maybe. Maybe. is If he's descended from Joel. an Irish Catholic immigrant family, almost certainly Joel. all these people were related. Is that your great, 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 great grandfather or something? You can tell us. We won't dob you in. Oh, my God. Um, so the police were not super hot on the trail of these criminals. They mostly let them go. Swagmen were constantly Probably wandering. Probably because they were the criminals. Well, I mean, literally. Swagmen were constantly wandering in and out of town, taking up short-term work for a few shillings for a couple of weeks or months, having walked from other townships or stowed away on goods trains. The streets of Gatton were likely filthy. Obviously, horses were the main form of transportation and the outhouse was still the preferred method of human waste management. Queensland's humid subtropical climate would not have helped the smell. Gatton, Gatton really was a gateway town to Queensland's Wild West, but the people who lived there enjoyed a relatively peaceful existence up until Boxing Day of 1898. Because some shit went down. Shit went down. The lead up to Christmas 1898 was, like all Queensland Christmases, unbearably fucking hot. <laughs> but this time without the prawns and no air conditioning. No air conditioning. Um, and if you like the Murphys and indeed all large families on Christmas Day, you had to organise accommodations for all of your children who are returning and also your brother-in-law who you hated. So Michael Murphy and William McNeil frequently had spots of trouble between them and Michael was not eager to spend any more time than absolutely necessary with his brother-in-law. Despite the heat and the tension, the family and the community at large were looking forward to the holiday. There was to be a horse meet at Mount Sylvia on Boxing Day and a dance at Gatton in the evening. Michael, Nora and Ellen Murphy were all invited to the dance. Michael was 29, a former mounted infantryman, good looking and strong. Ooh, good looking. Allegedly. Ellen, old timey people all look the same. If you look at photographs of them, they just look and like two eyes and blurs. they all have expression on their face. They didn't smile because no. cameras took too long to go. They probably never posted an Instagram story in their lives. Um, Ellen McNeil was 18, pretty, vivacious and outgoing. Oh. Nora was 27, who was more reserved and responsible but had a sassy streak <gasps> and was known in town as being stuck up as she once rudely and publicly rejected a suitor. Doll, same. R- relatable, right? Rel- fucking relatable, okay? If that makes me stuck up, then so be it. Despite the reputation of the family as thinking of themselves as a little superior, they were still popular and well-liked amongst the Irish Catholic families in Gatton. 
On Boxing Day, the majority of the family, including William McNeil, attended the horse meeting at Mount Sylvia. This is basically an excuse to race horses, gamble and drink, which I believe are still the traditional Boxing Day activities. At least they are in my family. Racing? Gambling and drinking. <laughs> what do you gamble? I don't think anybody like actively gambles, but it's more like let's watch the cricket and yell. Right. No, which, yeah. Fair enough. Which is the same thing, really. Fair enough. At this race was a gentleman named Tom O'Brien. 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 Joel. Brother of Jack O'Brien. Potential great-great-grandfather great of Joel, Joel O'Brien. Who knows? I don't know Joel O'Brien. Joel. Um, Tell us. Who was a bit of a cat himself and he had a sight set on Ellen. And it wasn't a sensible marriage he had in mind. Tom O'Brien had been convicted of larceny, charged with grievous bodily harm, and as mentioned before, was the brother of Jack O'Brien, the disgraced former police constable who had a bad reputation and was suspected of being a thief. Ellen, back away. Back away, all women named Ellen. (laughs) Plans were made and discussed for the dance that evening. Another dance was to be held in a neighbouring town and there was much discussion about who was going to be attending which dance. Ellen had her sights set on a fiddle player who would be performing at the Gatton dance. Yes, she did. Yeah, she did. So the plans for the Murphys were set. So a weird incident occurred at the races, which I will refer back to probably in four hours when we finish this podcast. Jesus. Between Tom O'Brien and Sergeant Arrell. So Tom walks up to the sergeant and asks him what time he's planning on leaving the races. Shortly, the sergeant replies and asks Tom if he knows about any shortcuts back into Gatton, which Tom confirms there is. And then he suddenly goes like, oh, if you don't go home without me, I'll go home with you and like show you the way, the way, wait till I get my horse. So Tom comes back, asks the sergeant if he wants to leave, but the sergeant can't because the race is is still going. The crowd is still too big and roundy for the cop to leave. All four people that are there. Well, it was busy. Leave them alone. Um, Tom says, no problem. I'm going to go and uh, investigate the shops. And then when I come back, maybe you'll be ready. He goes, but he never returns. The sergeant, who was already pretty thrown by this criminal guy being like, let's ride home together, pal, uh, leaves without him, basically. So very strange that this crime guy would be wanting to hang out with the only with a copper. sergeant in the town. I wonder if that works into the murder in any way. We'll find out. I feel like it will. So after the races, Michael raced a horse and didn't win, so he was probably not feeling too pleased with himself. The Murphys all all steadily made their way home. Johnny was the first, returning to the family dairy farm to take the cream to the creamery, which was a butter factory about two miles away. William and Ellen arrived home between 6 and 6.30. Michael and Patrick were next, leaving the races together, but midway through the trip, Michael rode on ahead, leaving Pat chatting to some acquaintances. He would arrive home sometime later. The McNeils were last around 7 o'clock. The Murphys all had tea. Nora, who had stayed home from the races, was now feeling a little unwilling at the prospect of having to, like, get ready and go out, which, like, dull, same. Big mood. Big mood. Um, She was unwilling to leave her young niece, Polly, and her young niece, who was Polly and William McNeil's daughter. Mm. McNeil somewhat reluctantly agreed to stay home and look after his kid. He wanted to go to the dance, you see. Had his sights on women that weren't paralyzed by him (laughs) yet. Hey, rough. Um, So Nora, Ellen, Michael set out for the dance in the cart, seen off by William McNeil and Daniel Murphy Sr. The mother said that when they left, both girls had a laugh upon their face. Unbeknownst to the Murphys in Gatton, the chief architects of the dance were preparing to cancel. Not enough people had arrived, tempted by the other dance in the neighboring town or everybody just being a little bit too full of Christmas leisure to attend. 
one of the biggest issues was that was not quite enough female attendance to sustain the dance. So it was a bit of a sausage fest. Just a bit. Just a bit. So who knows what the thoughts of the Murphys were on their ride into town. They were probably enjoying the journey, looking forward to continuing the good times that the holiday season had brought. Ellen surely was looking forward to seeing the fiddle player she had a crush on. When they arrived in town, the little trap containing the Murphys was seen to ride past the hall, which had its lights off and was clearly vacant. Without stopping, the trap did a U-turn and drove off back in the direction of Blackfellows Creek. The Murphys would never make it home. Drama and mystery. No one was concerned, especially when they didn't arrive home, because country dancers apparently often ran until four o'clock in the morning. What a rager. What a rager. What How many rager. times can you dance a jig in one night? Come and on, And the people. same piece of music because no one had many sheets of music to play. Not a lot of sheets of music. The Jesus. The poor fiddle player's hands must have been bleeding. Bleeding. Jesus. So it was William McNeil who first expressed concern that the siblings were not yet back. He worried that the cart he had lent them had broken down. He expressed this fear to Mrs. Murphy and she agreed that somebody should go out to investigate, which McNeil did. He set out, taking the back road into Gatton that bypassed the creamery that John Murphy delivered the cream to. He stopped there to inquire but was told that no one had seen Michael and his sisters driving past either the previous night or that morning. McNeil set off again towards the town and came across a set of tracks on Tenthill Road that he identified as being from his cart. The front wheel I mean, was, how do you know? The front wheel was a little wonky and made oh, a distinctive track in the ground. Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The tracks were coming from the direction of Gatton and seemed to veer off towards the gateway to a paddock known as Moran's Paddock, presumably because a guy named Moran, Moran. owned the paddock. Very Irish names. He followed the wheel tracks into the paddock where they meandered on for about half a mile east before suddenly veering south down a slope into a valley. McNeil took note of the tracks but headed up a ridge further up the paddock to look for a house, assuming that his siblings-in-law had stayed somewhere the night. Finding no house, he returned to the tracks and followed them down the little valley. In the distance, McNeil saw what he described as three heaps of clothing, a cart and a horse. As he got closer, he saw that the clothing on the girls was messed up and that there were ants crawling on the bodies. He then promptly hauled ass into town to get in contact with the police. He went to a hotel, as one does, to inquire about the location of the police station, where he went to find Sergeant Arrell, the town police officer, with the sergeant. Uh, So police officers back in the day didn't just investigate crimes, and in Gatton they apparently didn't investigate them at all. They were more like a government presence, so they did all the administrative stuff, like, you know, marriage license, paying fines, getting horse driver's license, things like that. (laughs) So everybody had to go to the police station to do all that stuff and one, basically the main police officer, the sergeant, had to deal with all that. So they're very overworked, not super focused on crimes. Um, Regardless, Sergeant Arrell, probably a little pleased that a crime was occurring that he could investigate and he could stop filing paperwork or whatever, was horrified by what McNeil was telling him and left with him to see for himself the bodies at Moran's paddock. The proprietor of the hotel that McNeil stopped at to ask for directions, Mr. Gilbert, was also there with three other men. They all went to the scene and what they saw horrified them. I will now explain it to you in gross detail. Oh, here we go. The bodies were arranged in a rough triangle. The men saw Nora first. I'm sorry that I'm smiling. (laughs) I shouldn't be smiling. I find this stuff very interesting. I'm not weird. The men saw Nora first. She was lying on a rug that was spread by the base of a tree. Her skull was shattered on the left side. Oh, her clothes had been torn open and her breasts were exposed oh, and her skirts no. were pushed up around her thighs. Oh, it's, an ac- it's an academic interest, I promise. Her face was scratched badly and there was a pool of blood under her mouth. Her hands were bound with a handkerchief. 
Nine yards away lay the bodies That's a of big Ellen. handkerchief. Well, you know, old timey handkerchiefs. They were big. Yeah. Folded up, enough. monogrammed, that kind of thing. Um, nine yards away lay the bodies of Ellen and Michael. Ellen's clothing was intact, but she also had suffered a massive blow to the left side of the head. Her hands were also bound with a handkerchief. Michael was struck on the right side of his head. He was found lying on his left side, face downwards, sort of in the fetal position. His hands were bent back behind him, almost touching, his left hand gripping his purse. The third point of the triangle was the horse, who was also dead, with a single bullet wound to his forehead. They killed the fucking horse? They killed three people. I know, but... (coughs) They did kill the horse. Jesus. So McNeil rode onto the Murphy farm to tell the Murphy family about what had happened. Interestingly, when he told the Murphys, they were all very upset, but they weren't shocked. Mrs. Murphy didn't ask him any questions about the murder. She was just kind of like, oh, my children, but was upset, but not surprised. When when he told Mr. Murphy, he asked one question, which was, have they been shot? And basically didn't react in any other way. Suspicious. Um... So back at the paddock, Sergeant Arrell had left the bodies under the care of Mr. Gilbert, the hotel man and the men, so that he could send a wire to Brisbane about the discovery. So the sending of this telegram was like the biggest struggle in human history. They honestly like built Rome faster. So he gets to the train station, which is where they also do the telegrams because the past. Um, And... He was like, oh, I have to send this urgent telegram to Brisbane. And the station master slash telegram guy was like, oh, you can't send an urgent telegram. Police aren't allowed to use urgent rates. You just have to send it regularly. And the sergeant was like, "Uh, sounds wrong, but fine. And it was, in fact, wrong. He was able to send urgent telegrams, but he didn't. He just sent a regular telegram. The station master was like, yeah, sure, you should receive a reply in 15 minutes. Sergeant Arrow waited half an hour, no response. He was like, I have three dead bodies in a field. I can't leave them. So he left. So the telegram got to Brisbane around 11.16 a.m. It was handed to a messenger boy who thought that the Treasury building where the police commissioner worked would be closed for the Christmas holidays. So he took it to the Roma Street Police Station. The constable at the Roma Street Police Station refused to accept it since it was for the commissioner at the Treasury and sent the kid back there, where the building was indeed empty due to the holidays, and he had to wander around the Treasury building looking for somebody to give the message to. He eventually found some random constable gave it to him, and the telegram would never be read by anybody until 9 a.m. the next day. Fuck off. Yeah, 9 a.m. the next day. The past. The past. Seriously. Don't get murdered in 1998. But at least we can send a message instantly. Jesus. So meanwhile, back at the paddock, the sergeant returned from sending the world's most challenging telegram to find that the hotel men had not secured the crime scene, we might say. And there was about 30 people who had come to gawk. Gatton Gatton people must be fucked. There was not a lot of entertainment. Jesus Christ. So they were all gawking. I believe the quote, I don't have it written down here because I'm bad at researching, but the quote was that the murder himself couldn't have choosed a better way to cover his tracks because there was now tracks from everybody's horses and them walking and stuff like that. No way to find, you know, if there was any tracks to be followed, they were now destroyed by all these gawkers. So he continued his initial investigation, even with his audience, um, and noticed a few interesting things. He noticed that Michael's wrists had a mark, which shows that his hands had been bound at one point, then untied. 
He noticed that Nora's skirts were stained with a thick, starchy fluid, but no blood. She also had a leather strap fastened tightly around her neck, causing discoloration to her face. He also found part of a branch blood stained with hair sticking to it, which was most likely the weapon used to bludgeon the siblings' heads. Also found at the scene, but not until some time later, was a newspaper cutting with an in-memoriam notice reading, In ever-loving memory of Edith May Cook, who died at Tenthill, Gatton, the 27th day of December, 1896, inserted by her still-sorrowing mother and brothers. Mr. Reeves. Once McNeil returned to the paddock with Mrs. Murphy's, the siblings' bodies were taken to a hotel for the post-mortem examination. Just casually in a hotel. Just in a hotel. I'm well, just going to show hospital. up to the Meriton and just say, look, I'm here for the This uh, is a hotel autopsy? like a pub hotel. Not like a hotel, but like like a hotel. No, I, I know. Like I was... an Aussie hotel. <laughs> but isn't it worse that they were brought to a pub? Just it's not, not a pool at table. least the Meritons fancy. Yeah, stretch them out on the pool table, sit oh. at the pokies while you're waiting for the blood results or whatever. So the examination was done by the government medical officer for Ipswich, Dr. von Losberg. Ooh, German. So here is a, or something, here is a quick description of all the injuries that they ended up finding. Um, so Ellen... Her skirts were pulled up around her knees, but not disarrayed, not torn or anything like that. Her petticoat, chemise, and drawers were stained with blood. Chemise. Chemise. I've never heard that word said out loud before. Chemise. Chemise. Sounds fancy. Chemise. Chemise away. Chemise and drawers were stained with blood, and there was semen on her drawers. One of her garters was around her boot. There was a heavy blow to the left side of the head that shattered the frontal, parietal, temporal, and occipital bones. Brain matter protruded through the fractures. Blood was present around the vagina. Everybody, if you're squeamish, stop listening. It's gross. Um, The labia was swollen and scratched, extending as far back as the anus. Her hymen was ruptured. Fingernail marks were present inside both thighs and elsewhere on the body. Abrasions (laughs) on the skin of both hands, which were both tied tightly behind her back and her own handkerchief. But no internal examination was undertaken. No internal examination at all of any of the bodies was ever done. They didn't actually cut them open. They just like were like, mm, yep, that's a scratch. So Nora was hit to the left-hand side of the skull as well, and she had the same fractures as Ellen. Um, her underclothes weren't torn, but they were loose, so they could easily be pushed up by an attacker. She was stained. I think the word they used in the book was drenched with a thick, starchy fluid, but no blood on her drawers. Starchy fluid. You know what that means. Semen? Yep. Right. Um, the strap that was fastened around her neck was embedded into the flesh. Ugh. Her hands had turned blue from being tied behind her back. She was scratched severely inside the thighs, the genital area, face and forehead, breast, buttocks, hands and arms. Her hands and knees had severe abrasions. On the right side of her face, outside the right eye, was a gaping cut about two inches long inflicted by something sharp like a knife. She had several fractured teeth and semen was present both internally and externally. Underneath the leather strap on the right-hand side of the throat was the imp- was an impression the width of a hand. So obviously Nor- Jess is just looking at me disgusted. I'm disgusted. I didn't do it. I'm just like eyes wide at the moment. Yes. So Nora had the most severe injuries. She was literally unrecognizable. Oh... So that brings up theories in my head from just the information that I you've given me now. I will be very interested to hear them at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, and then Michael, Michael's hat was stained with blood. Um, he, As I said before, he wasn't tied, but there were strap marks on his wrist. 
his fly was unbuttoned. There was semen around the inside of the fly, but not on his shirt, which was tucked in. So basically this means that it wasn't sometimes when you die, as we know, the body kind of releases releases its fluid, but his shirt was found tucked in. So that means at some point his shirt was untucked, semen was released, and then his shirt was tucked back in. Why or how? Semen will was never released. Be. Michael released his semen. Th- there's no way to know whose right. it was. So yeah. either we'll he get. was sexually assaulted by his attackers as well. We'll we'll never find out. There's no way to know. Um, his skull was shattered on the right side into sixteen fragments, and he had a bullet wound in the back right hand side, underneath his ear. Um, very gross. Doctor von Losberg probed around the wound with his finger said that his finger became infected and then stopped the autopsy. They had to exhume the bodies to find out how Michael died and that's how they determined that he died of a gunshot wound. They just stopped the autopsy. The doctor was like, oh, my finger. And then they were like, oh, this brutal murder can wait. I'm sorry. Yeah, right? Also, okay, germaphobe, me... He, was he not wearing gloves? It was 1898. Did but they invent gloves? But surely there were leather gloves. I don't know. Did they I go think... riding or some shit and they wore gloves? Yeah, of course they did. Fucking hell. I Put know. gloves on. Exactly. But so Ellen and Nora died of the blow to the head, but Michael Michael's died. by gunshot. The gunshot. But then somebody bashed in his head anyway. Mm. So he was already dead when he sustained that injury. Gross. This is fucked. So while the examination was going on at the hotel, the undertaker's son, William Miller, overheard a curious conversation between Mr. Murphy, Mr. Gilbert, and another man. Gilbert asked Mr. Murphy if he knew who committed the murder, and Mr. Murphy responded, I could go straight to them. Gilbert, shocked, responded, are you not afraid to say that? Which Mr. Murphy responded, I would rather have my children than have any more lives lost over the affair. So very interesting wording there. They said any more lives, whether or not they were saying more lives on top of the Murphy murders or if they were the more lives, who knows? Um, As I said before, the Murphy parents were not particularly shocked that their children were murdered, upset but not shocked. Um, Danny Murphy Jr. was a constable at Roma Street Station and like one of the siblings. He said that it had to have been family member that nobody else would kill the Murphys except a family member and he was also very worried about the speculation and gossip that was going to befall the family which the parent Murphys were also very very annoyed by they kind of stepped back from the investigation didn't cooperate a lot were always like being like blowing up about like what newspapers were saying about the family and stuff like that but didn't really do much to help the investigation so I find that pretty suspicious. Um, there was lots of evidence that the family was not sharing with the police. Speaking of police officers, you may have noticed that there are shockingly few investigating this murder. Well, due to the lateness of the initial telegram and a bunch of other shenanigans, police misconducty kind of shenanigans, nobody from the criminal investigation branch had arrived in Gatton to start the investigation. The head of the CIB at the time was a man named Frederick Urquhart. Urquhart was a very controlling, domineering man and had made a few enemies at the CIB, including a vast majority of his subordinates. By the time Urquhart had arrived in Gatton, the bodies of the Murphys had already been buried. So he never saw the extent of the injuries they sustained. He came from an upper-class English background, and he had definitely a bias that he believed that like educated, well-bred people didn't commit crimes. So this greatly affected the course that the investigation would take. The investigation was pretty 
thorough in terms of scope, but shallow in terms of like actual investigation. So they asked like everybody in the town questions, but they didn't ask like, where were you at the time of the murder questions? No, they were just like, like, what do you think of old man crazy that lives up the hill? Do you have a 380 caliber pistol? And they were like, no. And they were like, thank you, sir. Have a good day. <laughs> it's like, they could lie. <laughs> They're lying to you. Um, He's so, a bad man. He's lying. Exactly. Um, Urquhart. It was Urquhart's belief from the start that a stranger had committed the crimes. Therefore, he overlooked many local suspects and hyper-focused on one specific suspect. So, Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, right? That never happens. Um, so I'm going to go into the suspects now, of which there are many, Ooh. and some more detail of the night of the murder. Ooh. So there was a man spotted on the night of the murder at the slip rails that led into Moran's paddock where the bodies were found. This man has been named... The man at the slip rails. <laughs> what a title. I know. A number of witnesses variously returning home from activities in Gatton testified to seeing a man waiting at the slip rails that headed into Moran's paddock on the road that headed towards Blackfellows Creek. He was spotted both walking away from Gatton and towards Gatton, meaning he was most likely pacing back and forth in one area, keeping watch. The man was described as wearing a dark coat and a slouch hat with no beard and a mustache. He was seen by no less than six people who corroborated his appearance. All the witnesses had slightly different ideas about what time they saw the man, but it was between 8.25 and 9.15. The man was not seen by Sergeant Arrell or Patrick Murphy, who were also on the road at this time. It doesn't take a genius to assume that this strange man, who was literally standing next to the entrance to the paddock where the murders happened for an extended period of time, could be the murderer. Definitely. It was definitely Inspector Urquhart's belief that the crime was committed by a stranger to the town. But it is possible that a Gatonite did do it. Perhaps even a Gattonite. Some, yes, that's what I've called the people of Gatton. Gattonites. Gattonites. Hashtag Gattonites. We're all Gattonites. <laughs> Inside we are your heart, we are Gattonites. <laughs> um, very possible that Gattonite did do it. Even somebody intimately connected to the family. William McNeil is one of the main suspects to the crime. Naturally. You can hear my earrings I can shake. hear your earrings nodding in agreement. He was hated by the family. Um, especially Michael. They had beef. They'd fought in the past before, like physically fought each other. Were not fans. He desperately wanted to go to the Gatton dance, even going so as so far as to buy leather dancing shoes for the occasion. <gasps> oh. I know. It makes me a little bit Doll. sad. Like he bought special shoes, but also he was an arsehole. Yeah. Um, but he was given the brush off by the Murphy siblings who didn't want him to come with them for obvious reasons. And he was forced to look after his shitty kid all night. Um, he was the first person to raise the alarm that the Murphys hadn't arrived home, the first person to go out searching, and of course he also was the person who found the bodies. And again, like he identified it by like a wonky wheel in a road that hundreds of carts had gone down. Like Sounds suspicious. Sounds a little suspicious. Um, the members of the Murphy family did say that he'd come home and he was asleep, but nobody saw him past around nine o'clock. Um, Mrs. Murphy testified that she was up until midnight that night looking after the baby. So if he stayed home from the dance to look after the baby, why was she staying up until midnight to look after the baby? If he was there at home. To look after the baby. He was probably not at the house that night. Probably. Suspicious. Um, a, another suspect and Inspector Urquhart's favourite suspect was a man named Richard Burgess. Richard Burgess was a swagman who had recently been released from the St. Helena Island Prison in Moreton Bay. Um, if you've never heard the song Waltzing Matilda before and are wondering what a swagman is, it's basically a man who travels around looking for work. So people would roll up their possessions in a swag and carry it around with them. 
I assume that all of our listeners are Australian, but swagmen don't really exist. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Are you all Australian? Let us know. Let send us, know. us an send email. Send us email. Murder on the land of Oz at gmail.com. Um, so these men would walk from rural town to rural town getting seasonal or interrupt work as shearers, labourers or other farm work. When there was no work to be found, they would rough it, camping under the shade of coolabar trees and stealing sheep and whatnot. Richard Burgess was one such swagman. He had a fairly substantial list of prior criminal activity and said to police at one occasion that if he couldn't get food or other necessities, he would happily steal it, which I feel like is not necessarily the statement you want to be giving to the police. Probably not. Probably not. So Burgess pinged on Urquhart's radar because of his criminal past and his travelling lifestyle. Upon his release from prison, Burgess had wandered through Brisbane and had been travelling west in his quest for work. Around the 6th of January, 1899, Burgess was swagging around the Bunya Mountains area where he was reported to police for the heinous crime of peculiar behaviour. Don't, be acting, peculiar. Don't be acting peculiar. Don't be acting peculiar. You'll get lock arrested. You up. So some cops saw him, thought he was acting peculiar, arrested him on suspicion of being implicated in the Gatton murders. I have no idea what he could have been doing that was so peculiar. But Unless he was like holding a sign that said, I killed them people at Gatton. <laughs> Which would be peculiar, yeah, yes, that's peculiar. but still. So he was remanded into custody. Um, apparently the main evidence for him being involved in the Gatton murders was that he claimed to have reached the Bunya Mountains via Crow's Nest when usually people went through Ipswich and Gatton. Uh, obviously this is not the world's strongest evidence and the police had to drum up a few charges to keep him in remand while they built a case. The magisterial inquiry into the Gatton murders was going to begin on January 24th, so the police needed him kind of unlocked till then. Mm. At the inquiry, Burgess gave an exhaustive account of his journey west, including maps and references to specific farms and places he'd stayed, people he'd spoken to, witnesses who confirmed he had worked for them at the days and places he said. Despite all this, Inspector Urquhart was unwilling to believe that Burgess was innocent. Urquhart believed he matched the description of the man at the slip rails. To review, the description was that a man wearing a hat and coat without a beard but with a moustache was standing by the slip rails. Obviously, that only describes about 50% of 19th century Australian men, so I can see why Urquhart had a hard time yeah, letting go. Yeah, I can see go. why he narrowed in. Exactly. I mean, without a beard but with a moustache, come on. It couldn't Whoa. be anyone else. I can tell you it's not Zane. <laughs> moustache and beard. Congratulations, you, you did not kill commit the-, the Gatton murders. <laughs> a big relief to us all. And it wasn't Fifi. She is all hair. <laughs> She's all hair, so... Um, so the witnesses who saw the man at the slip rails testified that Burgess looked like the man, but not that he was the man. They said the man looked like Burgess, but they didn't think that it was him. But Burgess was still committed, was sentenced to two months imprisonment for the crime of, get ready for this, having no means to support himself. Like, same. fuck? Same. I could get arrested for that tomorrow. I know. Some cops you see me walking down the street be like, oh, she has $18 in her bank account. Cuff <laughs> arrest boy. Take me away. Um, the people of Gatton, much like us right now, were not really impressed. Um, the feeling was that Urquhart was basically just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And a man whose crime was really just like being homeless was like being railroaded into saying that he committed the crime, which he said the entire time he didn't do. Um, there was also a bit of feeling because like he was a swagman and a homeless person that he was just being targeted. He was basically being like discriminated against by the police. Um, there were lots of swagmen wandering the rural towns of Australia looking for work at the time. Um, they're considered folk heroes now. And at the time there was an amount of respect 
given to people who were, you know, trying to find work in hard economic times. So the people were kind of like, this guy's already down on his luck. All he has is a mustache and you're trying to make him be responsible for this crime when we, the people of Gatton, know he didn't do it because he wasn't here. Why are you not trying to find the actual perpetrators of the crime? Um, so I know, like, shock at Queensland police being incompetent. Not. Not at all. Do you know what? What? Sidetrack. What? We should go to the Queensland Police Museum at Roma Street. We should. There is a museum. And be like, why were you so corrupt for so many years? How many crimes went unsolved? And you can solve a murder there. Oh, I love solving murders. It's my pastime. We're doing it right now. Yay! Anyway, back to So there was another reason why Burgess was Urquhart's favourite man for the job, but to... He was his brother. Oh, my God. Um, he was actually him and it was a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. Whoa, uh, no. that awful musical. That's one song though. I need to know. That's a jam. What song? I need to know from Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, I hate that song. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> um, so to understand Urquhart's kind of bloody mindedness about this, we're going to have to quickly dive into another murder, which has been linked to the Gatton murders throughout time. Ooh. The Oxley murders. Uh, so as the, in oh, Ox- as in Oxley, righto, yeah. Um, so on the tenth of December, eighteen ninety-eight, a young boy named Alfred Hill was murdered in Oxley. Alfred was a shy, timid boy of fifteen who had rode out from his parents' house at Nunda to visit a relative's farm at Redbank Plains. Jesus fucking Christ, that is so far away. He by wagon that would have taken fucking forever. He didn't even have a wagon; he was just on a horse. You're fucking with me. Yes, people got everywhere by horses. But that's so like horses were knocked out to Red Bank Plains. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. He'd be spewing right now. There's a tunnel. Like you can get there real quick. Jesus. Um so his parents waited for him to return home, but when he never came back, they rushed to the local police station and begged the officer there, Sergeant Small, to begin a search. Their fears were dismissed and no search was ever conducted. It wasn't until the 17th of December that Sergeant Small made the mental link between Hill's disappearance and a warrant that was recently put out for a pedophile schoolmaster named Edward Wilson. Ooh. I know. All right. Allegedly, Wilson had left Brisbane on the 10th of December. Small reckoned that Wilson could have met Hill on the road out of town and done the nefarious deed. Small sent a telegram to the CIB containing his theory that was never read. Again, telegrams. Don't send them. Just open your mail. Just, like, honestly, send a smoke signal. <laughs> Don't knock over your microphone. Sorry. Just these are expensive. Um, on the 7th of January, 1899, Alfred Hill's body was discovered. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the Oxley murders because the focus here is Gatton, but there are a number of similarities between the two cases. Firstly, um, the victims in both cases were travelling on the road and were persuaded or forced to go into the bush by the perpetrator. Michael and Alfred Hill were both shot in the same manner behind the right ear. Both horses were shot in the forehead. A 380 cartridge was found at both murder scenes and only one cartridge was found even though two shots were fired. The hammer mark on the firing cap of both weapons deviated from the centre. A swagman was seen on the road prior to each murder and there was an apparent absence of motive for both of the murders. So on the 10th of December, a man named Mr. Cushing saw a swagman at the Oxley Bacon Factory and then again at Dara on the 11th of December carrying a pistol in his hand. So first time he saw him, no pistol. Second time, yes, pistol. 
Claude Wilson, the son of Edward Wilson, the pedophile, testified that on the road on the 10th of December, they had seen a boy on a horse and a swagman. After passing these people, Claude said his father stopped their horse and went back going into the bush. After waiting some time for his dad to return, Claude heard two shots, which his father said when he did return were due to him shooting a hawk, but Claude had to keep it a secret. The pistol in the hand of the swagman seen by Mr. Cushing on the 11th of December 1898 is thought to be Edward Wilson's, who either the swagman overpowered Wilson and came to possess his gun, or Wilson gave it to him outright. It's thought by Urquhart at least. The pedophile, Wilson. Yes, the pedophile, Wilson. Wilson, the pedophile. Wilson, the pedophile. Um, Esquire. And it is thought by Urquhart that the swagman seen by Mr. Cushing was Richard Burgess. Right. So the link there is that you see a swagman, two murders. The swagman's Richard Burgess. Richard Burgess committed the two murders. Exactly. So that's why he was so, like, sure. I don't know. I don't know. Again, hat and a mustache. Um, I think regardless of whether or not you think Burgess was the man seen both times, spoiler alert, I don't, um, I do think that the murders are probably connected. Many of the things that connect them could be written off as coincidences, but I think the most, like, convincing evidence is the hammer mark that deviated from the centre of the bullet. So I feel like if we were to see those bullets and they deviated the same way, at least you could say it was committed by the same gun, gun. even if not the same person. I think it's very possible that Edward Wilson, comma, pedophile, could have killed Alfred Hill and then been like, hey, Swagman, you want a pistol? And the Swagman's like, I'm poor and starving. I would take anything, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So um, happy, nobody ever, the Oxley murders is unsolved. Nobody knows who killed Edward, Alfred Hill. Um, But happily, Edward Wilson was sentenced to seven years in prison for unnatural acts against boys. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Are they connected? Who knows? Was Richard the Burgess the man both times? Not sure. Mysteries abound here in Gatton. Insert mystery music. No. Um, So another (laughs) Gatton local who was under suspicion for the murders was a man named Thomas Day. Thomas Day, are you on your phone? I'm, I, lo- I want to look at a picture of the, the kid from Oxley Murders. Okay, that's fine. I can allow it. Um, Thomas Day had set off from Oxley to Gatton on the 10th of December, 1898. He was tall, well-built, with a moustache and no beard. He had been camping in the Gatton showgrounds for 11 days when Mr. Clark, the butcher, offered him a job. His big frame made him suitable for the heavy lifting of carcasses that goes on at a butcher's shop. Day lived in a shed at Mr. Clark's residence, and it was said that Mrs. Clark disliked him immensely and was scared of him. As a stranger to Gatton, Day was one of the many travellers and other wanderers around Gatton that were comprehensively interviewed by police as a matter of course in the investigation. When Day was being questioned, the officer noticed a patch of blood on the inside arm of one of Day's two jumpers. When questioned, Day said he got it from carrying some meat, which is like par for the course for a butcher guy. The main evidence linking Day to the crime is that one of the witnesses, John Carroll, said that he thought the man at the slip rails was Mr. Clark's butcher's man. So, like, literally when they passed in their carriage or whatever, the man at the slip rails, he goes, isn't that Mr. Clark's man? You know? Yeah, So he was eyewitness identified possibly, but again, it was dark. He was wearing a hat. And he probably didn't have glasses even though he probably needed them. Where are you? Where? (laughs) What? Because he was, like... Gatton in the middle of nowhere. He probably have. He might invented had... glasses. No, I know, but oh, never mind. Okay, <laughs> a great You're saying. Like he might have I'm adding prob- it to my. He might have problems with his eyesight. He might, he might not. I have don't know glasses. anything about him. Yeah, neither. Um, 
So another suspicious thing is that when Clark saw Day's bloodstained jumper, he advised Day not to wash it as the police would want to take a look at it. Day then promptly washed and scrubbed the jumper. So when police saw it, there was one mark on the arm, but Clark and the manager of the butcher shop testified that there were between a dozen and 60 marks on the jumper. What? Yep. 60 marks 60 on marks. one jumper? I don't know how you could tell from looking at him. It was the it was the manager of the butcher shop, Robert King, who said there were 60 marks and he was not a fan of Day. So I think it's possible he exaggerated to be like, he's a bad guy, put him in prison. Fair but enough. there was more than one. Between one, Between one and, and 60. 60. There, that is many numbers. That That's is many different numbers. Many, many numbers. Many numbers. So the Clark family held a fireworks display on Boxing Night and Day was the only person associated with the household who didn't attend. So he did not have an alibi as to his whereabouts around the time that the man at the slip rails was sighted. His shed where he slept on Clark's property was not far from Moran's paddock and he was known to pace up and down Tent Hill Road at night smoking. <gasps> Tenterfield. Tent Hill. Oh, I thought you said Tenterfield. No, I said Tenterfield. I've Sorry. said it many times. Sorry. No, you have said Tenterfield, yes. So he was taken in at one at one point by the police and examined, but they only found that he had one small scratch on him, which is not really what you would expect if you brutally murdered three people. Probably, you would probably not. You'd probably have one between scratch. one and 60. Yes. Uh, Robert King, the manager of the butcher's shop and grudge haver against Day, said that he never carried meat for him and had done no butchering. So the marks on the jumper were spots and not smears like you would expect if he had been holding a carcass like near his body. Yeah. Like, it doesn't right, like off It's kind of like he hit something and then blood came up. Something like that. Maybe like he bludgeoned somebody with the end of a stick. Conjecture. Conjecture. Um, so question by, the, by police, et cetera, et cetera. Day told his employer, Mr. Clark, on the 5th of January that he intended to leave his position, but he was unsatisfied with the food which is an odd reason to leave your job. Two days later. I quit because I am unsatisfied with the food. Dude's like, (laughs) I literally gave you a job. You were an unemployed swagman. You eat what I tell you to eat. Yeah, sorry. Um, So two days later, he abused Mr. Clark, demanding that he let him leave then and there with pay. He abused him again on the 10th using foul language in front of the Clark children. (gasps) It was then that Clark let him leave. Thomas Day then went to Inspector Urquhart, told him that he had a disagreement with Clark and that he was leaving Gatton, and did Urquhart have any objections? Urquhart said he had none and asked Day where he was going. Day said that he was going to Toowoomba, and Inspector Urquhart literally told him, go to the police station and see if you can identify a photo of this man, this man being Richard Burgess. This is how obsessed Urquhart was with the fact that Burgess was this guy. He asked another suspect to go and see if he could identify him. Be like, yeah, sure, you can leave Gatton. You're only like suspected. Just tell of the me crime. that you recognize this guy, okay? And just tell me that you recognize the guy that I think did it because he was stupid. Um, so Day didn't stay in Toowoomba long. He left the West to go to Brisbane to join the army, which he promptly deserted and then was never seen or heard of ever again. Also, Thomas Day was an alias. So who was he really? Not 100% sure. And so, here he is today, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. <laughs> the Gatton murder of Thomas Day. <laughs> not Zane. No, I was just still gesturing to the door. Not Zane. <laughs> um, so why was Inspector Urquhart so convinced of Day's innocence that he literally gave him permission to leave Gatton during the investigation? Thomas Day was known as being quite erudite and well-spoken, and he was a great reader. When the detective went to question Day, he found him lying on the bed reading a book entitled Res- Oh, I should have Googled this before I put it in the podcast. Rizzini, perhaps. How do you spell it? R-I-E-N-Z. Rienzi. Rienzi. 
an autobiography of a 14th century Italian patriot. History fans, don't come at me. Day's nature impressed Urquhart, who, as I said earlier, didn't believe that well-educated men could commit crimes like this. So you heard it here first, folks. If you want to commit a murder and get away with it in old-timey Australia, all you need to do is read one thing. R-I-E-N-Z-Y. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's re There's an opera. I'm sure there is. It's an Italian dude. Wagner. Um, so I Googled the book, but not the pronunciation of it, clearly. <laughs> Renizi. Rienzi, I think. Um, so the book was written by a guy named Edward Bulwer-Lighton, who was an incredibly popular writer at the time, and his works weren't necessarily the most difficult to digest of reads. So, and he was actually, interestingly, the guy who wrote the line, it was a dark and stormy night. Oh, really? Yes, which is the opening line to the novel Paul Clifford. So it's kind of like... A detective goes into a household in the modern times, sees a guy is reading like the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> and then goes to his superior like, oh, well, he was this reading the legit. Da Vinci Code when I was coming to interview him. And so the inspector fine. goes, well, an educated man, a Dan Brown fan, he can't possibly have committed this heinous crime. <laughs> or like crime. a Patrick Clancy or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Like a John Grisham novel. Yes, John Grisham. <laughs> Love those books, by the way. The one about the baseball player. Oh, incredible. I haven't read any John Grisham. Oh, well. Should I? It's not exactly high lit. <laughs> I do want to read the Franny Fisher books. You should. Have I you? haven't read them, no. Okay. Um, I prefer it's no Da Vinci Code. <laughs> it's no Da Vinci Code. I do love the Da Vinci Code. Have I've read, read that a hundred times easily. And I read all of the like. She's fucking with me. No, I'm not. I've read it a million times. I've read all of like the fact books that came out afterwards, like proving and disproving different theories. I've read the Dead Sea Scrolls Deception. I have read everything about You're the Defensive Code. fucking with me. I'm not fucking with you. <laughs> I went through a deep, deep period of being Did like I obsessed. Did I know you then? Yeah, this was like, I was like 16. I was I, obsessed with like religious conspiracies and stuff like that. I don't remember having a conversation with you about Ask this Ask me before. one time about Jesus' secret brother. We can chat. Anyway, moving rapidly along, Thomas Day was not an official suspect even at the time, but he came kind of more to the focus during the Royal Commission that happened later in 1899 when he'd already split town. Another constable, Robert Christie, believed it was likely that since Day had only just arrived in Gatton that he could have been the swagman spotted by Mr. Cushing at Oxley on December 10th. Christie never shared any of this information with Urquhart as he had overheard a conversation between Urquhart and Sergeant Arrell where Urquhart yelled at Arrell saying that if he was to hear any more about Day, Arrell was off the investigation. Why he was so sure that it wasn't Thomas Day, we'll never know. It can't just have been the Dan Brown book. You know what I mean? Um, Thomas Day. A little Day, bit of winky face? A little bit. No, not a little bit of winky face. Put that away. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that noise is. That's a cat asking for food voice. So um, Thomas Day is like the official most likely suspect. Like if you Google this or read any books... It's usually Thomas Day that he's pinned on, which is fair enough. He didn't have an alibi. He matched the description of the guy, literally was covered in blood, you know, all those great things. I feel like if it acts like a dog and it smells like a dog, it's a dog, you know? And then he also immediately fleed. I feel like attention needs to be put on the fact like the 5th of January, a couple of days after the murders, he was like, I'm leaving. But Goodbye. I will fucking kill you if you don't let me leave right now with my money. And he went to the investigator, was like, I'm leaving. Got a problem with it? Urquhart was like, no, by the way, have you read, you know, the other Dan Brown book? (laughs) 
Um, anyway, so there is another theory uh, which was put forth by Stephanie Bennett in the book The Gatton Murders, A True Story of Lust, Vengeance and Vile Retribution. Ooh. This theory is pretty complex and has a few moving parts and I'm going to try and summarize it as quickly as possible. If it doesn't make sense, I apologize. Just as an event and we're rushing. No, shut up. I don't. Uh-huh. So I mentioned earlier that one item found at the crime scene was a newspaper clipping for an in-memoriam notice for yes, a woman named I Edith Maker. Yes, I highlighted that in my memory. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Continue. So May Cook, as she was known, was a great friend of Ellen and Nora Murphy's. Stephanie Bennett's theory goes that she was also a great friend of Michael Murphy's, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. May Cook died at aged 18 of uh, peritonitis. Jess, you're so good at pronouncing stuff. I'm an idiot. Peritonitis, which is an illness that often results from backyard abortions. Oh, no. This case has it all, folks. Back in the day when these abortions were done, the cause of death wasn't written as like abortion mishap. The death certificate would say peritonitis, septicemia, or whatever it was that resulted from the abortion that actually killed the person. Fucking hell. Abortion was, of course, illegal, as it still is in the state of Queensland more than 100 years later. But charges were never really bought against people who did it because it was hard to get a jury to convict. It was likely that May Cook died as a result of a botched backyard abortion. Another woman a few months later named Kate Ryan, (gasps) which is most of your name. That's like the second half of my first name and and my last name. Yeah. Whoa. Wild. Very Irish also. Uh, There's Um, a billion Ryans. There's a billion Ryans. Um, Hashtag a billion Ryans. Kate Ryan died in a similar fashion. She had died in Brisbane Hospital in March 1897, the cause of death listed as typhoid fever and epileptiform convulsions. The police investigated the death and said that she was supposed to have died through a fever, but it is supposed that she died in childbirth. According to Stephanie Bennett, the symptoms that Kate presented, which were noted as typhoid fever and epileptic fits, are the same as what results from tetanus-type infection, which, which often follows an abortion. It was known around town that Kate and Kate Ryan and Michael Murphy knew each other. Wink. But he had allegedly refused to marry her. It's possible that Michael Murphy knocked Kate Ryan up but didn't want to marry her, so gave her money to go to Brisbane to get an abortion where she died. As I said before, May Cook and Eleanor Nora Murphy were great friends. It's very possible that she was acquainted with Michael Murphy as well. But May Cook and her family were Anglicans, so there was absolutely no way that Michael would ever have married her. May Cook died at the house of Jack O'Brien, the disgraced former police constable I mentioned earlier, who was the person who most likely blew up the safe and the brother of Tom O'Brien, the man who acted oddly towards Sergeant Arrell at the Gatton races. May's older sister Georgina was married to Jack O'Brien for a period of only four months. She also died as a result of an abortion. So May Cook would have known that Jack O'Brien was a person she could come to when she was in trouble. He would have known how to procure said abortion. Okay, so... Let's clean it all up a little bit. So the newspaper article that was found at the scene of the Gatton murders. Death notice May Cook died of an abortion, most likely. Most likely. Whose older sister also died of an abortion, most Mm -hmm. likely. And Kate Ryan died of an abortion, most most likely, likely in Brisbane. In Brisbane. Correct. And Kate Ryan knew Nora. Kate Ryan knew Michael. Michael Murphy. Yes. So Michael Murphy is apparently a womanizer. There are two women dead who he's connected to who died after complications from having abortions. The newspaper cutting of one's death was found at the murder scene. 
Stephanie Bennett's theory is that a number of men in the town planned the murder in order to exact revenge on Michael Murphy for the deaths of May Cook and Kate Ryan. Michael Murphy returned home to Blackfellows Creek late on Christmas Eve. Bennett says he made a stop at a place known as Barlow's Hotel, where John Barlow, the owner of the hotel, lived with his wife Delia and sister-in-law Julia Quinn. Julia worked at the hotel with John, but Delia, the younger sister, did not. It's assumed by Bennett that Michael, who didn't drink, stopped at the hotel to ahem keep Delia company while her husband and sister worked. The Quinn family were friends of the Murphys and also of the O'Briens. Julia Quinn was considered was considering attending the Gatton dance on the night of the 26th, but she was convinced not to by one of the Barlows. When she heard about the murders, she said it was a good job that she didn't go to the dance as she would have been murdered as well, which shows that she was planning on attending with the Murphys. Julia, uh, Stephanie Bennett is very sure for some reason that Julia Quinn wasn't the subject of Michael Murphy's romantic affections, even though apparently she was planning on attending the dance with them. She thinks that it was Delia Barlow slash Delia Quinn who he was interested in. I don't really even the having wife of the, the wife of the, the bar guy. The bar guy, yes. Right. Right. So Barlow knew that something was going to go on the night of the dance, which is why he convinced Julia Quinn not to go. Bennett said it was this night, Christmas Eve, 1898, after Michael visited the Barlow Hotel to possibly go and romance Delia Barlow that the plan to murder him was developed. Um, so this podcast is going to go for 18 hours. I'm going to quickly skim over all the family connections and Irish Catholic ties that bind all of these conspirators together. You can read it in the book. Um, rest assured that everybody involved allegedly knew each other and was related to each other, would kill for each other, etc., etc. So the men involved were Tom O'Brien, the town ne'er-do-well, whose alibi for the time of the murder was proven to be alive, Bob Gill, a local man who had been overheard talking about some odd details related to the murder, Jack and Mick Maroney, who were cousins of the O'Briens, and another man, the man who had come to be known throughout history as the man at the slip rails, who Bennett says was named Joe Quinn. Two others were likely in the know. William McNeil, the hated brother-in-law of the Murphys, and hold your gaffes, please, Patrick Murphy. The dad. The brother. Oh. One of the many brothers. No, because it's Michael Murphy Sr. and the Michael Murphy Jr. Daniel Murphy. Daniel Murphy Jr. and Daniel Murphy Sr. Daniel, not Michael. Daniel. I might do a family tree and post it in the show notes because this family is confusing. Anyway, Bennett says that Patrick Murphy had to have known that there was some kind of vengeance plot that was going to be enacted against his brother Michael. So I mentioned before that the man at the slip rails was not noticed by Pat Murphy nor Sergeant Arrell on their ride home from Gatton. That's because Patrick Murphy was not actually riding home but was waiting in the bushes to notify the man at the slip rails when the sergeant was coming. So when Tom O'Brien had gotten the idea that to ride with Sergeant Arrow back home from the races, Bennett reckons that he'd come up with this idea to be like, well, I'll get him off the road entirely. I'll take him through the back road and then we don't have to worry about having a lookout or anything like that because the man at the slip rails is waiting for the Murphys to come home in the cart. But that plan fell through for whatever reason. So Patrick Murphy was there waiting to say to the men at the slip rails, yo, the sergeant's coming, hide. So this is after the races. This is when they are going back from the Gatton dance. So they've gone into Gatton, the dance is cancelled, they're coming Coming home. back. Yep. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Patrick you. was riding from Blackfellows Creek to where he lived at the college. Yeah. But he wasn't really, apparently, according to Stephanie Bennett. He was helping with this plot to somehow cause harm to his brother. The reason that Stephanie kind of puts as to why Patrick Murphy would be involved is that he was like ashamed of his brother's behavior and didn't want like any more like shame and scandal to be brought but upon then the family. Why would he want his sisters dead? That's the question. 
I don't know and neither does anybody else because it's a mystery. Mystery noises into mm-hmm. So Patrick Murphy also likely brought McNeil into the conspiracy as McNeil had a bone to pick with Michael and would like to see him brought to justice. Bennett doesn't think that McNeil and Murphy knew how violent the crime was to be. They, She thinks that they thought it was going to be like a rough up, like don't mess Just with Delia Barlow, Stop fucking get your people. life together. Come on, man. Stop fucking women and then paying for their abortions. Paying for their abortions, you sick fuck. Yeah. The brutality of the murder came into it, according to Bennett, through a man named Joe Quinn. So Joe Quinn was a violent man who had served a sentence in Brisbane for malicious wounding. He had many aliases and committed many a crime, serving prison sentences in 1879, 1880, Quinn had a bit of the Ned Kelly spirit about him and it was somewhat of a folk legend among the Irish settlers. People named their kids after him, although I don't know why because he was really bad. He had many family members in the Kanamala area of Queensland, which was the location of the 1891 Shearer's strike where unionists rose up against the pastoralists. The unionists demanded that unionists, another hard word to unionists. pronounce. Unionists. 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 The unionists demanded that the landowners recognize the unions and agree to their demands, which were the usual old-timey union stuff of, like, please pay us and let us have days off, and also, like, don't let us die from hard work. The landowners refused and brought in non-union labor from elsewhere. The conflict had escalated and gotten violent, and the Dowling Downs Mounted Infantry, of which Michael Murphy was a member, was brought in to try and keep the peace. Town gossip had said that Michael Murphy had made many an enemy while he was in Kanamala. It's likely that Joe Quinn, living in nearby St. George, which was also a location for the strike and with many members, family members involved in the like sheep trade, yeah. was one of the union supporters who fought against the pastoralists. And it's possible that he met with Michael Murphy and became one of his enemies. Oh, there's backstory. Joe Quinn, a criminal and a violent man, was obviously very anti-authority and probably relished the opportunity to engage in a good old-fashioned Aussie bust-up against the mounted infantry. He would also had been probably very easy to sway upon his supposed arrival in Gatton to visit his brother Martin, who had a farm there, to take part in a plan to teach Michael Murphy a lesson if they did indeed butt heads in Kanamala. He fit the description of the man at the slip rails and the swagman scene by pushing on the 10th of December in Oxley before the Oxley murders. He was known to carry a revolver. He had a very violent past. He fit the profile of the murderers compiled at the time. Bennett's theory that Quinn was the one who took things out of hand during the murders. So far from just scaring Michael Murphy, it was Quinn's appetite for violence spurned on by the alcohol consumption that all the conspirators had been consuming all day because it was indeed, you know, Boxing Day, the day for drinking. Still is. Still is. Shout out. Um, Had caused, so the drinking, the Joe Quinn violence had caused the event to escalate to the level it did, leaving all three Murphys dead. The women brutally raped and their skulls bashed in. William McNeil and Pat Murphy, who Bennett alleges to have watched from the ridge above the valley, were probably shocked by what they saw. Perhaps fearing for their own lives, they did not intervene. Perhaps once the other conspirators had left the scene, they went to see the bodies of their family members. Perhaps they pulled Nora, her body so savagely broken, onto the rug that laid out underneath the enormous tree. If Pat Murphy and William McNeil were involved, it makes sense as to why the Murphy family seemed to distance themselves from the investigation. Nobody definitively saw my McNeil after a certain time in the Murphy household that night. Only one person who was made of him testified to seeing Patrick at the Agricultural College the night of the murder. 
if the Murphys knew of Michael's dalliances with Meg Cook and Kate Ryan, it makes sense as to why they were not surprised when they heard of the murder. And if they they suspected that Pat and McNeil were involved, it explains why they were not in a rush to give evidence to the police. It explains why Mr. Murphy said to Mr. Gilbert at the hotel that he could lead him straight to the perpetrators. Obviously, it would be the families of the girls Michael had left disgraced. It gives a motive for the crimes, which Thomas Day and Richard Burgess definitely lack. It ties nicely also into the gang-like affiliations the various Irish Catholic families of Queensland's West had with each other. But there's no direct evidence implicating any of these people. So my question. Yes. Stephanie Bennett has come up with this spectacular theory. Spectacular. But it's just theory. And it's where just has theory. She, where has she gotten this from? Extensive historical research. Right. So, so she's gone back and... And learned about all the families, learned about the deaths of the girls, learned about Joe Quinn and everything like that. And wow. she's tied together a very nice story. But there's, I think it's great. And like, oh my it's God. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. It's better than Days of Our Lives. But there's no proof. Yeah. There's no proof. Um, Joe Quinn matched the description of the man at the slip rails, but so did Thomas Day and Richard Burgess. And one person said that it literally was Thomas Day. Yeah. There's no evidence that Joe Quinn actually did interact with Michael Murphy at the Shearer's strike, which involved hundreds of people and was, interestingly, the birthplace of the Australian Labor Party. A-L-P. A-L-P. There is only really town gossip that said Michael made enemies in Kanamala at all and only town gossip to link him to any of the women he's linked to. Kate Ryan is the more likely of the two to have been involved with Michael, but there's no actual evidence that he knocked her up, only that he said he wouldn't marry her. His association with Maycook is only that they were close friends with his sisters. And in my opinion at all, there's no evidence that he was involved with Delia Barlow in any way because all he did was come to the hotel on Christmas Eve and Julia Quinn was his friend and she worked there. I think it's far more likely that he just stopped at the pub on the way home. Even Maybe though he had didn't a drink, lemonade. To say hi to his friends because he didn't live in Gatton. He was coming back to visit. Like, yeah. So he was like, hey, mate, hey, Julia, my friend that I've grown up with, how you doing? Anyway, got to go home now for Christmas. Bye. So discussions about the case always centre on one fact, that whoever killed the Murphys must have known that the Gatton dance was cancelled, as why else would they be waiting on Tent Hill Road for them to pass? It's always been assumed that the Murphys were the direct targets, as many other people passed the man on the slip rails on the way home that weren't murdered. We've seen throughout this episode that Gatton was a fairly lawless place. The police were constantly occupied with menial tasks. Gangs of larrikins terrorised the town regularly, and uh, traveling laborers, swagmen with false identities were constantly wandering in and out of town, staying for only days at a time, drinking heavily at any of the five pubs in Gatton Town. People in the township didn't interact with any people outside of their small group. The Irish Catholics would have no reason to associate with the Anglican or the German settlers that lived in the region at all. The Queensland police, if we have seen, have historically been incompetent at best and actively corrupt at worst. They could not be relied upon to properly solve this crime, especially considering a late car- telegram caused no officer from the CIB to even arrive on the scene till days after the murder when the bodies have already been buried. And putting aside Michael's potential dalliances, there was no motive. Were the Murphys the actual intended targets? Were they the plan, like victims of a conspiracy? Or did some random madmen, highwaymen, wannabe thug type just come upon three well-dressed, rich-looking people and decide that they want to rob and murder and rape them. We will never know. The case is unsolved to this day. There have been tons of books written about it, tons of internet 
forums, which I read exhaustively and also weirdly saw comments that I had written myself that I had forgotten that I'd posted. Shut up. I was like, oh, same girl. Oh, wait, I wrote that. <laughs> when? What do you mean when? When did you write that stuff? A couple of years ago when I first heard about the case. Jesus. I really wanted to do this case because I was like, I know that a stranger did it. I know that somebody just rolled up on these people and killed them. Yeah. When I read the book and when I did all my research and stuff like that, I was very swayed by the whole Joe Quinn theory because it it is a really nice, not in terms of being nice, but it wraps it's a it up story. in a package. You it know? wraps it all on up. Yeah. It gives a motive to what was really just a random murder. Mm. And even though my Probably mind just was someone swayed, who needed money and saw rich people and thought, fuck it. Exactly. You know, unfortunately, people do roll up on other people and kill them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Still happens today. Still see, still happens today. Um, could it have been Thomas Day? Probably. Mm. Could it have been Richard Burgess? Almost definitely not. Could it have been Joe Quinn? Maybe, but there's just no evidence that he did it. No. I think why this murder is like so famous and so well known and people still keep thinking about it and talking about it is that it is very – it's. It tells you a lot about the time period that it happened in, you know. It's very descriptive of, like, what Queensland used to be like, you know, that it was kind of like a Wild West town, you know, where, you know, you lived in your community but you didn't really know anyone. You couldn't really trust anyone. The police weren't always going to help you, you know. The police in Queensland have historically not really helped people all that much ever. Mm. Um, I don't know who committed the crime. Jess, do you think you know? Well... I don't know. As I said, I came up with my Days of Our Lives theory on the Reginald Brown case as well where I insinuated that Norma and Old Mate um, killed Bronya. Great theory, by the way. I thought so. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. There's layers. Um, With this one, the thing that stuck out to me was that Nora had rejected somebody. Yes, she had apparently like very publicly and strongly rejected one and of the And she was Ryan the one that boys. had the most amount of wounds, didn't she? Had she had the most amount of wounds, yes. Maybe that guy. Maybe that guy. They were all related maybe, to each other, like, all these Maybe like, who families. knows, like maybe the guy saw Nora and Michael but didn't see the other sister so maybe thought, oh, she's going with some guy and like didn't, didn't, didn't recognise Michael. Didn't recognise Michael, yeah. And just went for it. Maybe. And then maybe Ellen surfaced like out of fear. Yeah. And he was like, fuck, I can't leave a witness. Yeah. I definitely think that if you assume that there was a plan and the plan was like vengeance or something like that, Nora was the one who was the most wounded, like far and away, you know, she was, she was really savagely like raped and beaten. Michael was shot through the head and he died immediately. Yeah. You know? Like it's almost like he was killed first, and then yeah. If it's a vengeance plot against Michael, I don't understand why it would be Ellen and Nora who received the brunt of the yeah. Trauma. I mean, unless they were really, you know, defending themselves. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, Bennett, force. Stephanie Bennett's theory is that they all just went like buck wild and were like, "Whoa, we love violence," because they were drunk and stuff like that. But even still, I just don't. If Joe Quinn had a grudge against Michael Murphy. Even if he was like a violent weirdo, wouldn't he bash Michael Murphy? You know, wouldn't that anger be channeled yeah. into Michael? Wouldn't you strangle? Wouldn't you bludgeon? Wouldn't you do something worse? Not just like a shot to the head in an afterthought, yeah. you know. That's my theory. I didn't know anything about this case and I'm so glad you picked it because that was so cool. Because Thank like you. that, um, you know, my 
both of our ancestors were like Irish Catholics yeah. that came to Queensland. Uh, I wasn't part of the, my family on the Oxenham side wasn't part of the um, convict settlement, but like came around came about later. that time, yeah. probably about 30 years beforehand. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's such an interesting snapshot of the past. And especially Gatton, like mm. Toowoomba is a very – I would love to see if there's any Toowoomba crimes that we can look into. I used to live in Toowoomba. Did you? Yes. I really enjoy Toowoomba. I had, I had the nicest time It's a lot nicer now than when I lived there. Yeah. They have, have shops. They do. But even just like the architecture and stuff like that. It is of very the original, Like of the like the train station and some yeah. of the original buildings are just amazing. I don't know why they don't film more period pieces there. Oh, they should. That's because they, nobody makes good Australian television. Exactly. Um, I, yeah. And especially Gatton, like the, my first introduction to Gatton was through Joel O'Brien. At yeah. Talking. He was like, where? I was like, where are you from? He's like, Gatton. I was like, we could maybe that? do some like DNA testing if they've got any stuff left over from the murders, which they don't. We could totally use him. Yeah. But yes, messed up. I don't I don't know who did it. I read a lot about this case. I have no theories. I have many a theory, but I have nothing that really Nothing concrete because it we seems like there. they just died, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's so I don't know. And it seems very you know, with old mate finding them. Yeah. Very convenient, right? That's the word because I was thinking. Because he hated convenient. them. He hated them. Why was he concerned that they didn't come home? He didn't like them and they didn't like him. I mean, him. maybe he really liked his wagon, but then it had a wonky wheel. Yeah, get a, get a new wagon. wagon. Hashtag get a new wagon, 2K18. <laughs> I'm really, really, quick, really glad you did that. Quick other question yes, for discussion. Same. Do you think the Oxley murders and the Gatton murders were connected? I mean, especially like if there's connection between bullets and stuff like that, which is, you know, it's not – as soon as you said that it was a 15-year-old kid, I was like, mm, maybe not. Mm. But – the bullet seems kind of... It's a little too but the coincidental. Thing, but, okay, so that kid was 15 mm. on his way from Nunda to Red Bank Plains. Mm. Where, yeah, Red Bank Plains. Yeah. Um, but the the thing that would... The theory that I would have about someone killing a kid on his way on a journey would be to have his mode of transport. But yeah. he shot the horse. He shot the horse. I think it's far too convenient that... A pedophile happened upon a child and like didn't kill him. Yeah. I would lean more towards that Wilson killed Alfred Hill and then gave his pistol to, to somebody. The yeah. Maybe he knew that the, you know, hammer in it was firing wrong, so it left a mark, like not from the center, and he knew it would be connected to him if he was ever investigated. Maybe. He did f- try and flee the country and then they apprehended him. Really? He did. But also he was like being prosecuted for the child sex crimes even before the wow. murder. Wow, this place is more fucked up than I thought. Yep, messed up. Don't go to Gatton. Just kidding. It's a lovely place. Please visit. There's a memorial. There's a memorial for Daniel, for not Daniel, for Michael, Nora and Ellen at the Gatton Cemetery. <gasps> you can go and pay your respects. Oh, very sad. Road trip. Road trip. Train trip. Jason can drive. Train trip. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the Gatton Murders. Thank you for listening, everybody. Fantastic work, I'd love Ellen. to know what other people think. Yes. If you send us a Facebook comment or an email, maybe we read them out. We could have a little chat, maybe meet up for some wine. Please send us emails. Please. There's 623 of you. Surely one of you can write us an email. Maybe I'll write us an email from my own account. Be like, great work. Wow, I love those two girls. They're so funny. Then we would have one email in our inbox and we could stop 
Yeah. Feeling sad. Cool. Well, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Good job, Thank Ellen. You. Look, anytime. I'm here every fortnight. <laughs> Until we die. Speaking of, next fortnight. <gasps> it's Betty Shanks. It's Betty Shanks. Oh, this is like. This is Jess's pet case. Yes. Mainly because I, I used to live across the road from where she was uh, found murdered. Um, and it's pretty infamous in Brisbane. There are a lot of people that have tried to come forward and say that they've done it. Yes, and lots of books. Again, so, us Queenslanders love writing tons of books about There's so many sleuths about true crimes, you know. I know. I want to judge them, but I can't because I'm one of them. Yeah, that's true. But, yeah, so next case will be in two weeks' time and it will be about Betty Shanks. Um, so you can rate and review and subscribe. And tell your friends. Tell your friends. Oh, my God. Tell all your weird friends who like murder and about us. And please head on to our Facebook. Our Facebook, Murder in the Land of Oz, is so – it's really cool. Like, There's lots of memes if you're a fan of memes. Yes. Well, mainly because they're – oh, my God, did you see that Ariana the Ariana Grande yes, meme yes, that I posted? Yes, you sent it to me. You posted it on Facebook. You tagged me in it and you put it, it in your Instagram so story. funny. It was that very was funny and relatable. That was the funniest thing I have ever seen. Agreed. Oh, my God. If you want to know what you're talking about, go to Murder and the Land of Oz's Facebook page. We're not going to explain it any further. Um, yes, excellent job this week, Ellen. I'm really impressed. Um, and we'll be seeing you in two weeks' time for Betty Shanks. So thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review and subscribe and tell your friends. And have a good weekend. And goodbye. These air on Monday, so have a good week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.